Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests with me here in the studio. First of all, a manager in the Global Support and Acquisitions Department of the Church History Department, Matthew Gilman. Thank you. It's good to be here, Ben. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for joining us. And uh, again, we have with us our friend Sarah Eyring. Hello. Sarah has recently read Saints Volume 1 and will be sharing her thoughts and questions in our episode today. Thanks for being here, Sarah. Today in our episode, we're going to talk about Chapter 13, The Gift Has Returned. The chapter starts off with a story of a fellow by the name of William McClellan. Matt, who's William McClellan and, and what's going on here? You know, William McClellan played an important role in early church history. He, you know, as a 25-year-old, he, he loses his, his, his wife, his daughter, um, and comes in contact with the church and, uh, and really goes through this conversion process. It's pretty profound, really fills with the Book of Mormon's true. And uh, because of his background as a teacher, as an educator, uh, and his writing abilities, kind of takes a prominent role early on um, in church leadership. His conversion is... Really, uh, for many of us, as one of the conversion stories that I think we can all identify with, he questions and reads. In fact, let's just listen to a little clip here from the book about um, how William McClellan became uh, a member of the church. While taking a long walk through the woods one day, he talked with Hiram about the Book of Mormon and the beginning of the church. William wanted to believe, but in spite of everything he had heard so far— he still was not convinced to join the church. He wanted a witness from God that he had found the truth. Early the next morning, he prayed for direction. Reflecting on his study of the Book of Mormon, William realized it had opened his mind to new light. He knew then that it was true and felt honor-bound to testify of it. He was certain he had found the living church of Jesus Christ. I love this particular answer to prayer because it's one that I can relate to. You know, there are examples of answers uh, that come in visions or in dreams or in phrases or, you know, things that are a little more clear sometimes. And I I know that that can still happen today, but I think many like me will have had feelings like this where it's not so much um, a visitation by an angel, just as a feeling, just simply a feeling that you know. And, And so that's totally relatable and actually how I feel about the church, that there's always been a feeling of knowing. And so I, I love that story. You know, I, I felt the same way as I, as I read it. You think, here he is, I, I think almost approaching it intellectually, right? He wants to have perfect certainty. And then comes the realization, this is good. This is making me better. Totally. <laughs> it's bringing me light. And, uh, and his interactions with, with some of these early missionaries and church leaders, he just sees goodness in them. And, and I think that that fruit of the gospel really is what helps William uh, accept it. That's really cool. So while William's having this experience of being, con- of being converted to the church and gaining answers, there's another man by the name of Ezra Booth that is becoming a bit antagonistic. Can you tell us who is Ezra Booth and what's his relationship with the church? 
Ezra in the, in the in the past, I think, it had really contributed in a lot of ways. There's even reference to him in the in the Doctrine and Covenants. But be, because of some experiences where he he felt like he saw the imperfections of the prophet Joseph, he, he seemed to get fixated on that. Couldn't let it go. Couldn't forgive him for for being human, perhaps. And uh, and it just seemed to grow within him. And uh, trended, like you said, kind of almost opposite of where Williams is going at this time, right? That. Uh, uh, it became his sticking point. Yeah, it's, it becomes a bit of an obsession almost. It feels like he he starts writing letters, and those letters um, are published in a newspaper, become pretty widely circulated. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And then those letters are actually picked up later and published in kind of the first full-length anti-Mormon book. So Ezra, he really kind of goes off the deep end here. And like like you said, he just... It starts off small, but he just can't let it go and becomes a difficult person and, and causes a lot of difficulties for uh, Joseph and for the saints. And I, th- I think that the way that, uh, that Joseph handles it is really interesting because, you know, at, at, at one point where Ezra is claiming that Joseph's hiding things or keeping things in secret or that his revelations are, are, are being kept away from the saints, that instead of Joseph hiding f- or fulfilling what Ezra is saying. He says, "Well, let's let's publish the revelations then. Right. Let's just put it out there. The things that you're you're concerned about. Well, let's let's just put it out there and let people decide for themselves." I thought that, that showed a lot of maturity, a lot of depth on on Joseph's part, and obviously inspiration. We're used to, you know, we have the Doctrine and Covenants, and it's all there, and but that's not what was happening in Curtin. Like you said, these revelations were recorded by hand. Some of the missionaries would make copies of them by hand, like, you know, scribes. There's no Xerox machine they could run down to. And so nobody has them or very few people have them. And Ezra's making a big deal. And like, I love that Joseph just says, well, let's, let's put it in a book. And so they, they decide to do that. Well, they're, they're deciding to do that. They, they counsel together about it. And let's, let's, in fact, listen to a little clip here about what the council talked about in publishing these revelations. The council talked the matter over for hours. David Whitmer and a few others opposed publishing the revelations, worried that making the Lord's plans for Zion more public might cause problems for the saints in Jackson County. Joseph and Sidney disagreed, insisting that the Lord wanted the church to publish his words. After more debate, the council agreed to publish 10,000 copies of the revelations as the Book of Commandments. That seems like kind of a big number. Is that a big number or is that normal? <laughs> I think it's a huge number. I think they were taking a massive risk. In fact, when we talked about the publishing of the Book of Mormon, I remember in a previous episode, uh, Spencer McBride told us 5,000 was double the amount of the best-selling authors would, would print. So this, this seems like an audacious plan. As they decide to, to publish the Revelations, there's some discussion about a preface. Can you tell us the story about the preface? I think it's pretty interesting. You, you, you get some pretty prominent, capable people assigned to write this preface. Uh, preface Sidney, uh, William, McClellan, um, Oliver Cowdery involved in this. And they, take the, they make their first draft, bring it back, and, and everyone's kind of disappointed in it, right? That they don't feel like that it's adequate. And what ends up happening is the Lord gives the preface to the, to the, to the Book of Commandments in Revelation, which is now section one of the Doctrine and Covenants. Once again, this—it's just this almost this tension between these talented individuals who can who can really write, and then the Lord speaking through Joseph, and yet section one 
of the Doctrine and Covenants has this weight and, 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 and credibility to it that really um, speaks to what the revelations are all about. They are a little embarrassed, kind of. Joseph's maybe his language isn't as good as they think it should be, and, and they're worried about what other people will think. And, and Joseph, I mean, he tells them, take, take your best shot, like in a legitimate way, do your very best, and let's see what you can come up with. And Oliver and, and uh, uh, William... Sydney had, had had taken their shot at the at the preface, but then later on, as as they're getting ready to to publish these revelations, there's still there's there's concerns among the brethren among the, just the wording of the revelations in general, not the preface, but it's just the whole thing, and uh, and the Lord kind of gives an invitation, a challenge to them. Well, if, why don't you try to write a new uh, a revelation? Why don't you see how you do at it? And uh, William McClellan, with his background, thought he could do it, and he takes a stab at it, and it was clear to everyone that's not the voice of the Lord. And it kind of once and for all just cleaned, cleared it up for everybody. Um, the idea that uh, the Lord's speaking through Joseph, and uh, this is, these words are, are from him. And then Joseph receives this revelation in a very uh, common passage that many members of the church will know. Let's listen to that from this revelation. What I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself, he declared. And though the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. I wonder what, just talking among friends here, I wonder what comfort that might have been to Joseph to know the Lord's got my back. He's supporting me. Yeah, it had to have been comforting, right? Because cause I'm, I'm sure, I mean, if, if you were to make a, even a broader application of this, I think... Any, anyone who served in any calling in the church recognizes their own imperfections, their own inadequacies, or uh, their lack of education or preparation or whatever it may be. And I'm, I'm sure for Joseph, that must have been just a strengthening moment to say, because God's working through me, even if I'm imperfect, uh, my words are not really my words. He will use me as an instrument in his hands to deliver what he needs to. And there's, there's, a, there's a large-scale application of this verse of speaking of just the brethren in general, that we can trust them and know that, that their words are what God would say. But I think even down to our level to say that, um, that God can speak through any of his servants and that he's not necessarily going to change our eloquence um, to be able to, to be the messengers, um, but he'll ensure that the, that the message, the essence of what comes through is his. Absolutely. And this book that they were compiling at the time was called the Book of Commandments, um, but now it's called the Doctrine and Covenants. Is that right? Mm-hmm. What was behind the the naming of this book, and why did it change? I think they use the words Revelation, um, Covenants, Commandments kind of interchangeably, and I think that actually is really cool because it shows that they viewed Revelation as being more than just uh, a voice from heaven, that it was binding. And so when they named it the Book of Commandments, it, um, they saw the Revelations as commandments, as if God had truly spoken and they were bound to those words. And, and so that original publication used that word. And then later in 1835, uh, the title becomes Doctrine and Covenants as we, as we know it now. That's interesting. There is a topic that's linked to from this chapter called the Book of Commandments that um, does discuss the name. And if my memory serves, it, it mentions in the topic that when they decided on Doctrine and Covenants, there was a group of lectures that were created called the Lectures on Faith. They were included, and that was sort of the doctrine. And the commandments, as you said, they were covenants, they were commandments, they were revelations. And so those two came together. It was the doctrine and the covenants. And then, uh, of course, 
later on, I think it was like in the 1920s, we dropped lectures of faith because we really didn't have great sources on you know, who the actual authors were. And so we retained the name, mm-hmm. but we, we don't have those lectures on faith uh, in the book anymore. Although they're certainly available and, and lots of people in fact still quote from lectures on faith. They're just not part of our scriptural canon. Yeah, and I think I think the entire story of the the Book of Commandments is so interesting that here they're they're trying to be proactive and publish the revelations. They've got this large scale goal, like has been mentioned, ten thousand copies, and um, but the opposition was strong, right? And and uh, we and I think we've seen you know in various church videos and and whatnot of a printing press being destroyed. Well, that's referring to what goes on when his William W. Phelps is is preparing these these manuscripts um, or these transcripts of the of the revelation that because of mob violence the printing press was destroyed several members of the church end up um, just showing how much they value this. They put their lives at risk, essentially, to rescue these pages of Revelation, which they viewed as is so important. And um, the, the great story of the, the Rawling girls um, going and hiding with these pages. And right. and uh, I think it's one of the great chapters in, in church history of just the value of Revelations and that they didn't get their 10,000 copies of that original printing, but the, but the fact that several members made their own bound copies of these loose pages that have been rescued, um, including Wilford Woodruff, is just, it speaks to how important the Revelations really were to them. Definitely shows the value that they placed on these and uh, the sacrifices they were willing to make to get them, to print them, and to to hold on to them. And it's pretty incredible that we have them still. Uh, our listeners would might be interested to know if you want to see original copies of Book of Commandments. If you happen to be in the Salt Lake City area, you can stop by the Church History Library. We have one on display, and of course, you can go to josephsmithpapers.org anywhere in the world. And you can see one of the original copies of these very pages we're talking about today. Yeah, there's there's one on display at the at the Church History Library that was Wilford Woodruff's personal copy, and I think it's a one of the great details of that book. You can't see it, but in the back, he he ended up handwriting in. Uh, the Word of Wisdom, section 89, because it hadn't been given yet at the point the Book of Commandments was created. And that's just, a, it, 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 you just see how fresh and alive these this revelatory period was um, for the saints. It wasn't a closed canon. Wow. Yeah. So we have another character that uh, we're introduced to in this story here, um, a lady by the name of Nancy, and I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. Is it Towel? T-O-W-L-E. Nancy is kind of a traveling preacher. She's preached at a lot of different congregations. She's generally fairly tolerant of other Christian religions. And she hears about Joseph and uh, the, the members in Kirtland, and she stops by. Tell us a little bit about Nancy Towell. It's kind of interesting that um, Nancy is hosted by Elizabeth Marsh, Thomas B. Marsh's uh, wife, by their family. And uh, she thought, thought the Latter-day Saints were... Uh, were off that <laughs> they were that they were deceiving people and she was there to try to keep people from following the mormons and there's just this this really interesting interchange that happens as she's she's kind of watching observing they go to a confirmation meeting following some baptisms and and William Phelps kind of bold with her says, you've got to accept the Book of Mormon. She says, well, if I, if I had that Book of Mormon, I'd burn it, you know, and just very antagonistic. Right. And, and she says to Joseph, you know, you're just, you're deceiving all these people and, and you're uneducated and how could you do this? And why would God work through you? And uh, I think it's one of the most beautiful statements in the whole chapter. Um, so, you know, Joseph testified simply, the gift has returned back again. 
as in former times to illiterate fishermen. Let's listen to a little clip here from that exchange, and then we'll come back to Joseph's response to Nancy. Nancy was offended, as if Elizabeth had accused her of not knowing what the Spirit of the Lord felt like. She looked at Joseph again. Are you not ashamed of such pretensions, she said, you who are no more than an ignorant plowboy of our land? I got a kick out of the fact that the illustration for this chapter in the print book shows a plowboy. And uh, because this is Nancy's statement, she's saying, you're just a dumb farm kid. That's what she's saying. And, and I love Joseph's response. Can you, can you tell us that again? Joseph's response back to her is perfect. The gift has returned back again, as in former times, to illiterate fishermen. I hadn't ever thought of the fishermen that Christ calls his disciples that way as illiterate. But of course, that's, that must have been, been true. I think it's just so fantastic that that's one of the ways that Heavenly Father seems to work in his church, especially with his leaders sometimes, to choose people who you may not be inclined to follow because of their great looks or their great education or their incredible ability to speak. But of course, he is able to make great things out of small things. And I, I think that's such a wonderful and encouraging thought and, and actually encouraging for members of the church who, who may not ever be in leadership positions, but who can also know that even in their meekness and their humbleness, especially in those things, they can accomplish great things through the Lord. I think that's so exciting. You know, you look at it, they, this entire experience that the, that the brethren are having. So you have even among church leadership, people that are fairly educated, right? Like William McClellan, you've got Sidney Rignan, um, you've got people that are Oliver Cowdery. These are capable, educated people. The Lord called Joseph. And I think that that statement is, it's not only valuable to Nancy as an outsider who's observing what's going on, but even as you look at all the attention, even what Ezra Booth has been struggling with, to realize God calls who he calls and he makes them capable to do that work. And uh, you, you have to wonder, even looking back in the New Testament of what Peter felt in contrast to Paul. Paul so ed- articulate and educated and Peter is this fisherman. And yet you read the epistles of Peter and they're profound. That's so true. I've heard others say this, but it it gives me hope that, you know, the Lord can work through somebody even as imperfect as I am. And with my own inadequacies and, you know, lack of knowledge, but somehow um, he can find a way to use me. And uh, I love that. I love it when I've had experiences where I feel like Heavenly Father has been able to use me. Those are probably the, the most happy moments in my life when I feel like, Heavenly Father wanted me to do that, and it feels awesome. I hope and I expect that it felt the same for the prophet Joseph and for his associates um, that we're learning about through saints. In this chapter, we're learning a lot about the revelations of Joseph Smith and their publication in the Book of Commandments. And when I read the topic on revelations of Joseph Smith, I found a source that actually tells us what it might have looked like. And I'd love to just share that with our listeners. This is from the topic, Revelations of Joseph Smith. William McClellan, one of Joseph Smith's scribes, described the way revelations were recorded. Quote, the scribe seats himself at a desk or table with a pen, ink, and paper. The subject of inquiry being understood, the prophet and revelator inquires of God. He spiritually sees, hears, and feels, and then speaks as he is moved upon by the Holy Ghost, end quote. Joseph Smith proceeded to dictate, waiting for the scribe, quote, 
to write and read aloud each sentence, end quote, until Joseph signaled the revelation had ended by saying, quote, Amen, end quote. Parley P. Pratt, who witnessed the recording of several revelations, stated that, quote, there was never any hesitation reviewing or reading back in order to keep the run of the subject, end quote. According to his official history, Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim when receiving several of his earliest revelations, but he evidently received revelations without such aids after June 1829. It's incredible for me to think that these revelations almost exclusively, with very, very few exceptions, were the result of a question. It said in here, the inquiry being understood. So Sarah has a question. She goes to the prophet and asks the question. He sits at a table, speaks slowly and distinctly, asks them to repeat it back, and then moves on until he says, amen. So I don't know. That was exciting for me to learn kind of what it looked like. What did you guys think? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty awesome. And these revelations came out of a pretty simple process here. I mean, we're not talking um, in every case that an angel came and stood by Joseph and said, this is exactly what you need to dictate word for word. Right. But there was clearly revelation being given and that it was recorded um, and that Joseph had confidence that the revelation came from God. And I think that there's power in that, that, you know, maybe some, we, we may be prone to sometimes question their own, our revelation that we receive, right? Definitely. I think that's probably one of the things that's most impressive here is that just knowing it, it came from him. And I think even back to what we talked about earlier of some of the wording of the revelations that uh, some of the brethren had tried to, maybe they felt almost maybe embarrassed or, or is the wording exactly perfect? And, but none of them questioned if the revelations were from God or not. And I think that that's a great lesson. Well, thank you, Matt, for for being here with us today. It's uh, exciting to talk about this moment in church history where the the things that we sometimes can take for granted in our Doctrine and Covenants, we just open up our Gospel Library app, and there it is, um, how they came to be, how important they were, how sacred they were to our pioneer ancestors and to the early saints, and that they should and can still be for us today. Thank you also, Sarah, for being with us. And thank you, listeners, for for tuning in. We'd invite you to listen to more episodes of the podcast on the Mormon channel. And as always, you can learn more about saints at saints.lds.org, where you'll find our latest videos, uh, topics, and new chapters posted frequently. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. Mm -hmm.